you're too into fashion to be a serious journalist. And I've always enjoyed proving people wrong. So from that point onwards, I was like, I'm going to show you that I absolutely am serious and I can do it whilst I'm wearing whatever I want. Welcome to Psychologically Speaking with me, Leela Ainge. This is a podcast all about human behaviour, weaving together fascinating research opinions and real-life experiences. I'll give you a psychologist's insight into how we behave in spaces we live and work in, and how they in turn shape us. This season, we're exploring my favourite topic: imposter phenomenon. So get comfy and let's dive into today's episode. In 2022, I conducted the first piece of research that asked the entrepreneurial community about their experiences of imposter phenomenon in online community spaces. The research is rich and it brings out really interesting perspectives that cover visibility, coping with comparison and being in an online level playing field. Thrown in with the experiences and feelings of being visible, women opened up about the way in which they use clothes and accessories as a form of armour to show up online. From a statement pair of glasses to bold colours, I was intrigued when women discussed how they create characters out of their clothing to cope with imposter feelings. I'm overjoyed to pick apart what I heard with an expert in both imposter feelings and styling ambitious women. This week's episode features the magnificent Samantha Harmon, the style editor. Samantha is a trained style and confidence coach and uses techniques such as neuro-linguistic programming, emotion-focused therapy, human design and hypnosis to help ambitious women to quit their imposter syndrome, stop wasting money on clothes they never wear and feel good in their style and their body. Samantha openly shares her own experiences of feeling like an imposter She became an editor at 27, which at the time was unheard of for young working class women, and dressing for it was a minefield. While Samantha achieved great things on the outside, she constantly felt like she was going to get found out. And Samantha tells us this deep-rooted lack of confidence meant she didn't stand up for herself, didn't go for the opportunities she deserved, and thought that the only way to be valuable was to work herself to burnout. Samantha thought that the answer to her problems was more clothes, because you're always just one new item away from finally feeling enough. Now, I'm not afraid to admit that leopard print is my favourite colour, so it's no surprise I've been an avid listener of Samantha's podcast, where she tells us that clothes are not the only answer. I can't wait to chew over the research findings with her. So a warm welcome to Psychologically Speaking to Samantha, the style editor. Thank you so much for having me what an intro wow i sound fantastic <laughs> <laughs> i have to admit i have lifted quite a lot of that from your wonderful website and it obviously shows through that you have an editing background because your writing skills are amazing and it was very easy for me to just say oh this is exactly what you do and who you are so thank you you made my life very easy there <laughs> I'd like to ask you just first of all a little bit behind how you actually got into the styling coaching because it was quite a departure I imagine to go from working in industry as an editor was it in magazines or newspapers both magazines and newspapers yeah for my sins (laughs) and what was it that actually kind of took you to to going into where you are now which is a a stylist and, and, and coach for ambitious women 
I have always loved clothes and dressing up. And when I was a kid, I would do stuff like create little outfits for my dolls and draw outfits and all those kind of things. But I got the impression that fashion and style wasn't for someone who looked like me. Because from a very young age, I was told that my body was wrong and that I should essentially spend the rest of my life trying to fix it. And fashion and style at that time, as it has been for many decades, was almost a way to make women feel bad about themselves so they'll keep buying more stuff to fix problems they don't have. Mm. So I put those dreams, I guess, to the back of my mind. And because I had an aptitude for writing and for talking to people, I love to talk, (laughs) I just ploughed into being an editor and I worked across newspapers, TV, radio, etc., and then settled in newspaper journalism. And actually, one of the first things that someone said to me when I came into a newsroom to interview for a hard news job was, you're too into fashion to be a serious journalist. Mm-hmm. And I've always enjoyed proving people wrong. So from that point onwards, I was like, I'm going to show you that I absolutely am serious and I can do it whilst I'm wearing whatever I want. And as a woman leader in journalism, Mm. I faced a lot of what would be classed as misogyny. So when my first editor promoted me to be a chief reporter on the news desk, and then I became an editor, he came back from a meeting and he said to me, Sam, unfortunately, a lot of people are going to have a problem with this and it's going to be harder for you because you are a woman. And I know that is hard to hear, but you're going to have to suck it up (laughs) and Mm -hmm. find ways to deal with it. And my clothes absolutely became a way to deal with that. Like some of the findings that you had in your research, I did use my clothes as armour. And in doing that, I started to get more opportunities and people wanted to talk to me about Mm -hmm. clothes. So women I met would say to me, can you help me find something to wear for an interview? Or I've got this really important meeting tomorrow what should I wear? And obviously at that time, I wasn't doing anything in style. I just loved dressing up and I loved helping them. And that was the point I realized that there was something to this and that style didn't necessarily have to be about making people feel bad because that had always been my experience of it. It could actually be used to empower people and we can change the meaning of it. I think it's fascinating. I mean, it doesn't surprise me that that misogyny exists. I mean, I think that misogyny exists in many different organisations. But, I, you know, that kind of um, environment where imagery is, you know, portrayed in print and with photos, it's just right there in front of you, isn't it? And it must have been quite challenging, I suppose, I mean, do you think things are different now? I mean, this was, this was a while back, but do you think things have changed at all? I think we all say that they've changed, but really has it changed? I mean, the rise of social media and what we're looking at now and AI-generated imagery is a huge cause for concern. And when I was working in magazines, I went to, you know, these big flagship titles to do internships, and I thought, I, like I've made it I can't believe I've got an internship here this is the place that I've coveted my whole life and some of the conversations that I heard in those places were absolutely shocking and terrible 
and stuff that should not be repeated. But I think now, as much as we see more individualism and more celebration of different bodies and different types of people, Mm. there is still that traditional, always wanting to go back to the same rigid (laughs) expectation (laughs) of what a woman should be. Mm. It's, it's really interesting as I lead out on this podcast series my first episode talks around why I want us to start using the the phrase imposter phenomenon rather than in syndrome because it's something we experience and that experience is driven by the prejudice and inequity and you know how safe or unsafe the environments are that, that we sit in and what you've just described there is I was in an environment that was misogynistic. It wasn't necessarily a safe place to be. And there I was, a 27-year-old leader who should have been supported. And, you know, that that person who said to you, well, people won't like this, should have been thinking around, well, how do I remove those barriers rather than putting that on you? I mean, that's a big thing, right? Um and so I think it's really interesting that, I mean, that's a physical physical space. And yet we're both working, aren't we, with um, entrepreneurs in online spaces now. And like you said, that view of how social media and AI shapes the spaces that we're in has had a phenomenal impact on women's self-confidence and self-esteem. And I just wondered, you know, what kind of things are our clients talking to you about in, in the, around those online spaces, for example? Very much in terms of feeling like an imposter. So many of the women who I work with who run their own businesses describe feeling like they're on work experience Mm. or like at any minute someone's going to come along and say no you can't do this you don't know what you're doing even though these are women with years of experience and qualifications incredible women I was working with one recently and she was reeling off all the things that she'd done and all the things that she hoped to do and I was speechless because I just couldn't believe how accomplished this woman is (laughs) I just want to, I'm always want to shake people and be like, you are brilliant. <laughs> so there, there's that, but there's also this idea of rules, you know? Mm. So I can't wear that because I'm a size X and people my size can't wear stripes or I can't wear those two colors together because some way back in the early noughties, there was a TV show that told me that I couldn't. So we have all these rules in our head that are stopping us from truly expressing ourselves in a way that we want to. It's really interesting. I was actually thinking this morning, so, I mean, this gives away my age, but um, one of the biggest TV programmes on when I graduated, or even just before, was Ali McBeal. And in Ali McBeal, obviously, Calista Flockhart's uh, main character, she's the protagonist, um, is dressed head to toe in Calvin Klein suits. Now, when I graduated, I was not, under a size 16 so I could not just walk into a shop and or I couldn't order a Kelvin Klein suit but I was working um, as a management consultant and I was a graduate trainee so there was a real expectation as I was sitting in boardrooms with people from Price Waterhouse Coopers and Cap Gemini and there was me and I'm from a, an old kind of mining and pit town in Swaddling Coat um, you know so my experience of growing up, I didn't see people in suits. My mum didn't wear a suit, you know, she she worked, but she didn't wear a suit. My dad was in service, he worked for the police force. And I had this expectation in my head from TV around how I should look. And for many, many years, you know, I, I tried to emulate that style in wearing suits. 
as a 40, almost five-year-old, I'm, I've become really comfortable in my own skin, but it's taken so long. And I look back now, and one of the most pleasurable things about listening to your podcast is I just kind of feel that it summarizes a massive journey that I've been on in accepting who I am and just being comfortable in wearing what I want to wear. And that's one of the really nice things that that you've brought to the, to the online space for me in, in your podcast. And that investigative journalism of yours, I think you've just unlayered or you've t- peeled back every single layer of all these excuses and reasons and thoughts that we've all had around how we should show up and, and how we should feel. I wanted to kind of share a few of the comments that came through on the research. Now, these these kind of like a bit like a good editor I had to cut a lot from my research paper, um, which is why we've got a podcast so that I can just explore it a little bit more widely. Um, but these were some of the phrases that my um, participants talked about. Now, again, accomplished women, you're talking there about a woman you spoke to who got so many things going on. I spoke to a couple of women who were really at the top of the game and, you know, 15, 20 years worth of experience. So these are not entrepreneurs who were startled. These are people who've been doing this successfully for a long time. And the things that they were saying to me is, you know, I'm very colourful in real life. I'm, I'm bigger than the room and I match that with my clothing. Um, I should be more suited and booted, though. So this is somebody talking about, here's an expression of who I am. Here's my big personality. And I I characterize myself as a big and bold person, but I feel I should be suited and booted. So I'm just interested in, you know, your your hot take on that. I mean, where's this coming from? So in the 1970s, there was a book written called Dress for Success, Women at Work by Mm -hmm. someone called John T. Malloy. And in that book... Malloy describes what women should wear, should be wearing to work. And that was because at the time, women being in work was relatively new. Yeah. And essentially, what that book says is women should try and emulate men in terms of their shoulders. So hence the rise of the shoulder pad, because then you can stand shoulder to shoulder with men. But you should also remember that, you know, your main job is to be attractive to men. So accentuate your waist and make sure that you are obviously still feminine so we still have those rules from over 50 years ago in our heads and what I found particularly since the pandemic is that workwear dressing is very confusing Mm. people aren't sure what smart casual means or business casual means and no one is having those kind of conversations in the workplace And it's time for us to create some new boundaries around what we can and can't wear to work. However, the paradox is that there are studies that do show that in leadership, people do kind of look up more to those who are wearing formal attire. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of, yeah, it's a paradox between expressing yourself and also feeling that you are formal enough to lead the conversation. There's a lot of talk online at the moment around casual wear, and we see it a lot in the shops. If you if you walk into the high street right now, most of the stuff in there is tracksuits, hoodies, loungewear, etc. Great, fine. 
But the people online peddling this idea that you can just wear pyjamas and create a successful business have (laughs) a level of privilege that the rest of us don't have. You know, Mark Zuckerberg can go to a meeting wearing a hoodie and that's fine because he's a billionaire. That doesn't apply to the rest of us. And so as unfortunate as it is, we do also need to use our clothes in a way that helps us get into the rooms that we want to be in. That is so insightful. And, you know, I can can totally relate to that. I mean, I do a role where I'm often on client sites and the last 12 months for me have been fantastic because I've been on client site um, a couple of days a week and I've been able to dip into my wardrobe and actually wear my work clothes. And something you said in, um, it was either an email or a podcast that you did recently, was talking about getting yourself ready in the morning for work. And it really resonated with me because I definitely found during lockdown, if I was sat and not really dressed and I got my kid with me at home, I was homeschooling and studying and working. um, There was something about that incongruence of not feeling that I was in the role that I was supposed to be doing at the time if I was just wearing a a jumper or pair of shorts. And so for today, for example, I've done my hair, I've put a bit of makeup on, I've put a nice jumper on that I like the colour of. And and that for me was getting myself ready to be professional and to sit and have a good old chat with you. Um, And there has to be that middle ground, doesn't there? There does, yeah, because unfortunately we don't all have the privilege of being a Mark Zuckerberg. But to your point about getting dressed in the morning, yeah, there's something called enclosed cognition, that's what psychologist call it whereby we act to the role of our clothes so they did a study using lab coats they've done this study a few times where participants are given the same lab coat and they're told this is a doctor's lab coat or this is a painter's smock and they found that those who were wearing what they thought was the doctor's lab coat performed much better in tests than those who thought they were wearing a painter's smock so subconsciously we have ideas attached to items of clothing and so if we wear something that we have an idea attached to it that is this is what someone productive wears we will behave in a more productive way we've been putting our pajamas on since before we can remember our parents would take us out of our you know going out clothes and put us in our pajamas to go to bed so the idea that we have in our head is pajamas equal rest and so Mm. when we wear our pajamas all day to work yeah sure it feels like a novelty but it's confusing our brain because our brain is like okay am I resting now am I meant to be working what am I supposed to do (laughs) imagine there's something also quite comforting and feels quite safe about wearing your PEJs if you're working and especially during that lockdown period and this is where I did my research was was just post lockdown you know, we talked about Zoom fatigue and being tired. So I wonder, I wonder what impact has being a little bit more casual had on our whole psyche and, and where we're going. And it's interesting you mentioned that study as well and the enclosed cognition, because the, the studies that we have, and again, it, it feels as if we, you know, it really talk, talks to the sexism and inequity that, that exists in psychology as well, because a lot of research will want to look at, well, how do men and women fare when they wear different things? And and it exposes some of those prejudices and um, the inequity that, that we see. And the one that I'm always fascinated by is one that was a swimwear 
um, study. So they had um, a group of participants and I think they were students as well. So always a bit of caution because it's not representative of a bigger age group. Um, but they had them try on swimwear or a jumper in a changing room with a mirror. So that person was enabled to do their own self-evaluation. And then afterwards, they had them sit a maths test um, and the women were impacted by the maths test. So if they'd worn the swimwear, they did worse in the maths test than the men. The men were more consistent across the board. And again, I think that also speaks to, the, you know, the inequity and the prejudice. And, and I suppose the fact that there's privilege, isn't there, for some people rather than others? Yeah, definitely. And I think women's bodies are judged in a different way mm. to men. I mean, there's the body shape as fruit and kitchen utensils thing that style does, you know? You're an apple, you're a violin, you're a brick. It's just <laughs> men don't get the same the same treatment as women in that way. They're not told constantly to wear stuff that flatters them. And by yeah. flattery, what we mean is making your shape look more like an hourglass, which is what men find apparently more attractive. That's what it's about. So it's really fascinating to look at that study and to think about where those rules and norms have come yeah, from. Yeah, where they've come from. Yeah. And it's interesting. There's another psychologist um, called Amy Cuddy. Amy's had a horrific time in the psychological community because a lot of her scientific research has been scrutinised. And in psychology, we have this huge kind of replication crisis happening. And what that means is a lot of studies that were done and published and um, published because probably the people who've published it have been, been given the platform to publish it, um, have been found to not be producing the results when they've been replicated. So a lot of this been around priming studies and priming effects and marketing, etc., but Amy Cuddy's research was really scrutinised. And her key piece is that idea that if you stand tall, um, you can have this power pose and that power pose will make us more confident. So the jury's really out on the efficacy of, of what she's proposing there. But at the heart of this, really, I think some of the intention behind that research was, you know, confidence is more than what we wear and who we are. It, it's so interlinked with lots of other things. And that includes cognition, the clothes we wear. Clothes are doing a number of jobs for us. They're literally protecting us from rain and heat. You know, um, they're also doing things like they're, they're kind of an extension of our self-expression. So it's a way for us to communicate with other people. And my psychology research really kind of sat on that social identity theory, which is saying, you know, everything we do is around where we sit in groups. So are you part of the group that I'm in? How do I know that you're like me? And the fact that we are more drawn to people who are like us. So if I wear bold colours and you wear bold colours, I go, well, that person's like me. I can get on with them. Um, but I think it's interesting that when we have got research out there, um, and especially when women put research out there, how scrutinised that is. Yet this guy who wrote this book on how we should dress, I mean, did he come under the same amount of pressure as Amy Cuddy? Probably not, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, and it's over 50 years later, and we're yeah. still actually a lot of workwear, work, workwear codes that we see are based on his book from over 50 years ago. 
you're right it doesn't kind of have the same level of scrutiny and even conversations that I have around clothes come under so much scrutiny too I mean I've been posting every day on LinkedIn about this stuff and the psychology behind why we wear what we wear and at first I had so much backlash to it and it's just very interesting how I think that it's something to do with the fact we see it as frivolous and something silly and actually superficial is a word that someone used when every day we all get dressed and actually on average we spend 11 minutes a day thinking about what we're supposed to wear Mm. which is oh it's about two days a year of our lives so to call it kind of superficial is to miss the point and women are socialized in a way that makes them have to think about this stuff way more than it does men it is strange I mean I was looking at some of the very early kind of texts on um, the psychology of clothing and it wasn't necessarily the book that was written which is called psychology of clothes um but a review of it and this is from 1930 so there's a professor called professor flugel and i've not read his work extensively so um i'm not going to go into detail but basically he writes a book he's a psychoanalyst i think you'd actually probably really enjoy his work from that psychoanalytical perspective samantha but he um did a piece which was talking about people's types of clothing and wearing etc and he was talking about differences in sexes between male and female and this is the 1930s remember so he's talking about the fact that men have by and large discarded um, the need to be narcissistic and showy with their clothes Um, and somebody is reviewing his book and they're saying um, that their summary is we are ashamed of the working of our minds as we are the contours of our bodies and I just thought wow I mean that statement is as relevant today as it was back in the 1930s but when you break that down women are ashamed of the workings of their minds as much as the contours of their bodies would really summarize those statements that come out around imposter phenomenon for me and especially in the entrepreneurial community because women are a little bit embarrassed to admit that um, they have to think about clothing so much that they have to use it as armour um, and they're just as ashamed of, of that as they are the, those negative feelings and that whirlwind that imposter kind of spins up for people. I know that you work very, very closely with people who have those imposter experiences and in terms of that, I'm ashamed, you know, of the working of my mind as much as the contours of my body. Is that something that comes through with the imposter work that you do with women? Very much so. So often I will have clients who will never talk about working with me. Actually, mm. entrepreneurs are more likely to talk about working with me than those who work in corporate environments, because yeah. even though in corporate environments, women are very much judged on what they wear, it's a conversation that is taboo. Mm. which you know when it's something that can help people do better at their job I find fascinating but I think even it's a barrier to getting help because our wardrobes become a physical manifestation of what's in our mind Mm. we think that our wardrobes are just a collection of clothes actually they are ideas about who we want to be ideas of what we aren't things that we want to achieve things that we haven't achieved memories shame guilt all of that stuff 
wrapped up in a wooden box in our bedroom. And sometimes the shame and guilt can be a barrier to people even reaching out for help. And what they will do instead is think, well, I'll actually just go and spend £500 on new clothes because that will make it better. But because they aren't addressing the psychological reasons behind why their wardrobe has become what it becomes in Mm. six months' time, they're going to be standing in front of this overstuffed wardrobe again thinking, I've got nothing to wear. And I think that really comes through in in the research, especially in that entrepreneurial community, because what I was able to see through the the deep interviews that I did was really how the emotions that people experience and how they process those really express them through that wardrobe choice or express through how people think they're perceived. So that identity, um, I had people who, through ways of coping and As a psychologist, coping is a good thing, right? It it can be really helpful. Um, But it's helpful when we use it in short term and small ways. And it can be less helpful when it becomes maladaptive. And and almost like on a sliding scale, I could probably put my participants into different groups where there are those that are using clothes in quite a positive and almost a rebellious way to say, well, who does she think she is? Well, I'm this and here's who I am and I'm not afraid to wear these colours and be this person. But at the other end of the scale is this person going, I will be bold and I will be that because I'm really frightened that people will discover I'm a fraud or I'm not this person. And, And I'm really interested actually because what we see in those online spaces and in social media could be that two different people. So when you see an image of somebody who looks bold and confident, are we are we seeing or you know who sits behind that that's the bit as the psychologist that I'm interested in and what you're saying there is evidence that women don't want to talk about which one they are you know there's a there's a shame but perhaps there's a stigma too if I admit that I'm not confident then that means I can't be an entrepreneur and that theme was so prevalent through the research that women felt that entrepreneurialism came with being confident Um, And yet there were people lining up to talk to me about the fact that they didn't feel confident and yet they were hugely successful. So that's a paradox as well. Um, You know, you don't have to be confident to be a successful entrepreneur, but it probably helps. (laughs) That's so interesting. That's that's fascinating. Yeah, I, I get that. And I often have people say to me, oh, you're so you're just so confident. I couldn't do that. You're just, you know, you just got it. You're just confident, not realizing that there's a whole story behind Mm. that. And actually with the online space for entrepreneurs, I think there's a bit of a disconnect and a lack of self-integrity when we show up online as one thing. And then behind the screen, we know we're being something else. And I will often say to people when I meet them at events, why did you wear what you wore today? And they'll say, oh, because I knew you were going to be here. I went to an event recently and it was a room full of women wearing lovely outfits. Yeah. And all of them said that they'd put special effort in because they knew that I was going to be there. But what I'm really interested in is not what they're wearing in front of everyone else. It's what they're wearing when they're at home on their own, when no one else sees them, because that's actually what they're telling themselves that they are. So if they're portraying online, I'm this confident, bold, colorful person. And then behind the scenes, they're not dressing that way for themselves 
they have a lack of self-integrity and that then plays into why they feel like an imposter mm. because that is what they know to be the truth. A couple of comments on that. I've got a couple of questions for you. I mean, one, we're, we're just pointing out here that incongruence again, which is, you know, if you are one thing in one space and another thing in another space, then it's going to lead to a feeling of disconnection and not quite that you feel who you are. But my question to you is, how does that make you feel? As a coach, I mean, your job is, you know, you want to help lift people up, but knowing that people are dressing up to serve you, mm-hmm. and how, do, how does that land? It makes me feel like there's a lot more work to do in terms of what we think of when we think of a stylist. And yeah. I've had the comment quite a few times before of you don't look like a stylist in a good way because people's perception is that a stylist is someone who, you know, is stick thin, very judgmental, tells them what they can and can't wear, throws out everything in their wardrobe, says, no, this is disgusting. You don't know what you're doing. And I've had those experiences myself with stylists. And so what I'm doing is something completely different. So I do understand where that stereotype comes from and why people would perhaps feel the need to dress up and portray something else. But I think that's why I share so much of my actual journey. So Mm -hmm. they see that that doesn't, none of that matters to me. And I I actually understand them because that was the situation that I have also been in. What kind of um, advice do you give to people? I mean, in that initial kind of, I suppose, context of somebody reaching out for the first time to say, I need help with my wardrobe. And um, I imagine at the back of their head is is kind of those thoughts that probably I would have as well, which is maybe I need to learn the rules on how to dress. Maybe I just need to know some tricks. Um, and when I've got that nailed, I'll be okay. <laughs> um, how, how are you like talking people through that initial conversation? I think if those rules worked because they are free available to anyone on the internet, there would be no need for anyone to reach out to me because they would already have implemented those rules. But clearly something isn't working there. So what I'll do is have a conversation with them about why they feel the way they feel. Mm. And often I'll ask them questions about their wardrobes that they haven't ever asked before or been asked before. You know, what are you wearing today? Why? On a scale of one to 10 with one being the lowest of the low and 10 being I feel like Beyonce where are you every day and often people will not pretend but they will almost fool themselves I guess to thinking that they feel better than they do or that they don't have as much stuff as they do or that they're wearing more of their stuff than they are so I ask them questions that get them to think and I'm not leading them in any way I'm just Mm. asking them and and sometimes if they reach out to me we will just have a conversation and I know that that's helpful enough for them and they'll go away they'll apply some of the stuff they may come back in a month or two months or a year but then other times I will see that there is stuff that I can help them do and then I'll say why don't we work together on this Mm. And I love the fact, I mean, it really comes through in your podcasts and, and your newsletters are amazing. I love, I like it when your emails drop because they're always interesting and there's always a little nugget of something in there. Um, 
but I really like the way that you're trying to get to what's happening with somebody in their head. So you're not focused on their contours, you're focused on what's going on in that head and and how can we unravel it? And and I suppose that's where the journalist comes out, you know, and that, that kind of razor sharp um, mix of journalist, psychologist, and also, you know, stylist all coming together just, just makes it a dream kind of way to, to tackle some of those imposter feelings, I imagine. I hope so. I am a dream. You're right. <laughs> I hope so because uh, it it nothing kind of breaks my heart more than someone enlisting the help of a stylist. The stylist telling them you're an apple shape. Only wear these clothes. Do this. Do that. Here's a list of things that you need to have in your wardrobe. And then leaving, and then not understanding all of the psychology behind that. I can give you a list of clothes that you should be wearing but if you have unhealed trauma or you have things inside you that are going to stop you from wearing those clothes I haven't helped you I've just made the situation worse mm-hmm. and that upsets me question I've got for you um is there's a whole narrative around whether we should or should not comment on people's appearance and I think this is you know it comes down to commenting on women's appearance And I've been really fortunate, I suppose, um, for the last year or so to be working with a group of people where we were quite excited by seeing what each other's wearing and and it's that kind of environment and it feels quite supportive. And um, it's not the only thing that we notice about each other, but certainly I've got a shocking pair of pink shoes that everyone comments on and I love wearing them and I love it when people comment on them and that says something about me as well. But what are your what do you have an opinion on this narrative of we shouldn't comment on how people look? It's interesting because people have always been dressing as performance. Mm. There are studies that and research that shows that as far back as you know two thousand two thousand six hundred BC, people were dyeing their clothes, and archaeologists found found shell beads from eighty eight eighty thousand years ago. Wow. That people were, you know, they were using it to dress. So it, we use it to assimilate, like like you said, and we use it as performance. And there's a reason why our favourite shows on Netflix have costume designers, because mm. it's making us more, but giving us more belief in that person in that role. An actor can be a great actor, but if they turn up to play Henry VIII and they're wearing their old T-shirt and jeans we as the audience have to do more work. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that it's, again, kind of a paradox because is there a yes or no? And sometimes I think that there is grey area with things and it's become very popular to be polarised on one side or the other of various different debates and ideas. But (laughs) I don't have one. I know that I sometimes dress in a way that, allows people to talk to me and I've had clients through what I'm wearing I have people that will come up to me and say I haven't ever spoken to you before but I saw you at this event a year ago and you were wearing this thing and I remember it so we can use our clothes as a way to be remembered and in an online space when when attention is so hard to get that is a way of stopping people scrolling 
and looking Mm. at you and assessing if you are someone that they assimilate to. Yeah, and I have I have a thought on this that, you know, for me, there feels like there have to be a set of circumstances that are in place to enable us to be able to comment on how somebody looks. And I think if you're in a space that is psychologically safe, and I spoke to um, Christina and Laura in a previous episode about this, um, if you're in a space where your abilities and skills are recognised and acknowledged in their own right then I think, you know, we create space to enjoy how we can creatively use appearance and look and colours and, you know, different fabrics, etc. And there's a real richness in our world, isn't there, in our visual world on how we use all of these things. Um, But it feels to me like you have to do the work. You've got to do the work as an organisation or in an industry to be able to have that affordance to be able to say, oh, wow, that person always looks amazing <laughs> you know it's like they look amazing but also they are top of the game or they're they do this or they have these amazing skills so I, I feel like there's a lot of work to be done there and, and similarly as a psychologist I suppose I'm less interested in the extremes but that that kind of gray area in between and why do we think that and why is it popular now to to not want to tell people that you know wow really likes what you were wearing and where did you get that from it was really exciting it's always been such a natural part of our conversation yeah it's a it's a way of creating conversation with people through what we wear and studies actually show that when leaders wear something that is a little bit different so maybe you know a colorful sock or a colorful tie or an accessory they are perceived as being more um, competent than other people at their same level. I wonder if I wonder if some of that is around, you know, it's giving a visual cue for that person to stand out in the memory. And there's certain things that we hook onto, isn't there? So when you talk about that closed um, cognition, it can happen in many different ways in terms of how we... Um, think about somebody's competence in confidence and their leadership ability but I wonder if that it's also just markers that it just means that we remember more and when you remember more then you can associate more kind of thoughts with it very interesting (laughs) I'm going to wrap up a little bit and it was really interesting that um, when I looked at some of the research that sat around clothing I mean obviously clothing has been and fashion go hand in hand and the fashion world is so geared towards the female form and when you look at that professor flugel's book from the 1930 he's talking about the fact that you know um, men have have kind of moved into more kind of standardized clothing and women were the people to be showcasing a bit like peacocks you know and, and and putting all of their colors out there and that was seen as narcissistic behavior and I think over the years, there's been all sorts of things that clothes kind of um, emulate what's happening in our social lives. So, you know, the fact that in the 80s, women had entered the workplace, a workplace that had never been designed for them. And here they were trying to stand shoulder to shoulder with men and be like men with their, you know, physical shoulder pads, which you described so well. And yet we're in a space now where we're almost going, but we don't have to be like men and we don't have to be this and we don't have to fit to these rules and we can be rebellious. And I really like that idea that um, Flugel had in his book, actually way back when, which was there are rebellious dresses. And I just wonder if we've come full circle a little bit and that it's taken, 
you know, the fact that we've had to expose some of the misogyny and also the inequity to be able to kind of go, clothing can work for us in a, a very powerful way if we let it. Yeah. And it's not superficial because it's something that is part of our DNA and our identity. For example, a lot of people describe themselves as a magpie. So they'll say, oh, I'm just drawn to sparkly things. Actually, mm-hmm. that scientists believe is part of our evolution because back in the day, our ancestors were primed to look for water sources. And because water reflects light, we wanted water. Mm-hmm. So now when we see something shiny we want it we want to wear it so it's you know we're in this this time where clothing is seen as something superficial to care about but at the same time it's part of our identity and ultimately it's part of our legacy I mean we all think of a celebrity or a famous person and there'll be a piece of clothing that we identify with them and the same with relatives you know if someone that we care about passes away we'll likely keep an item of their clothing because it reminds us of them it seems to me that um online spaces and getting dressed up have something really in common for us they're both an extension and an expression of ourself and my research really kind of it it said what online space is able to do is they give us digital affordances and those affordances allow that self-expression. And I think both things do similar things for us, getting dressed up, being in online spaces as entrepreneurs or women entrepreneurs, it, it gives us those affordances in ways that perhaps being in a boardroom or in a physical office might not have done. And, and that was the really kind of interesting and in, intriguing thing for me was just how how women had found innovative ways to use the way that they dress, not just to protect, you know, so thinking about that scale again, women who were just really going for it and going, yeah, you know, this is me and why shouldn't I? And I'm embracing it and I feel comfy in it. Um, But those women appeared in the research to be at home with those feelings and had dealt with some of those uncomfortable feelings. If people want to know more about this emotion-based approach to coaching and how you fuse all of your magic together where can they reach you and how can they listen to you you can find me at the styleeditor.co.uk you can listen to the nothing to wear podcast or you can find me on instagram or linkedin i'm everywhere i'm always open for a conversation about this stuff <laughs> I do love the fact that you're everywhere and I am just so thrilled that you agreed to come onto my podcast today. It's been a blast chatting with you and I know I'll be looking forward to your next LinkedIn post or Instagram or even your podcast because you are just so interesting with your ideas and I know that you really deeply research everything that you do. So thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for today. I hope you learned something new, or perhaps I've given you a new way to think about what you experience. A quick reminder that rating and reviewing all the podcasts you love really does help other people find them, which is especially appreciated by independent podcasters. For more psychological insights, you'll find all the ways you can connect with me in the show notes. Thanks for listening to Psychologically Speaking with me, Leela Ainge. Bye for now. Bye for now.